of you, have, if you have ever been asked by relatives and friends over the years as I have about this time of year, about the middle of December, what do ethical culturists celebrate? Do you celebrate Christmas? Do you celebrate Hanukkah? And why do you do the things you do at this time of year, people ask. Amanda asked us in our meditation this morning to remember a story that you cherish about this time of year. I remember last year when we asked a similar question and then heard your, heard during the response period and then afterward in the community hour about moments in the winter holiday season that were meaningful to you, stories of dads making latkes for their child's classroom, or traditions involving roasting marshmallows in the fireplace at the first snow, or of serving meals with friends here at West at Luther Place Women's Shelter in December for the holidays and then dancing with the residents, or of small remembered gestures of beloved grandparents long dead. I can't speak for what everyone does in our community, but I can speak for my own family. In our family, we light Hanukkah candles and eat latkes, and sometimes Jean says the prayers with each candle. Later, we decorate a tree and have friends over who sing every verse of every Christmas carol in the 25 copies of the Reader's Digest Christmas carol books my mother gave me. <laughs> we book flights to see our family, hoping that our flights won't be canceled and that we won't be bumped and that our luggage will surely follow us wherever we're going. We bake things, wonderful things, and we cook using torn yellow recipes our mothers wrote out many years ago recipes that we use because they remind us of home. We decorate like crazy. We sit and read curled up by the fire. We look forward with joy to the gathering of relatives. We look forward with dread to the gathering of relatives. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, some West members I know go out for Chinese food. Some go out to the movies on Christmas Day. Some of us sneak out late at night to go to the cathedral or a local church. Some of us, like me, love family traditions. Others feel trapped by them. And some of us ignore the whole thing. It's a complicated season, especially for those of us who moved away from many aspects of the traditional religions of our childhood and no longer believe, if we ever did, that the ancient stories represented historical truth. And some of us are still pondering what we should do this month and ask ourselves if we are selling out as humanists if we do celebrate the holidays or selling out if we don't. And so where am I on all of this? I would say that the holidays of the season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Diwali, Kwanzaa, are all archetypally based constructs created by humans, and that we are just as entitled to participate 
and the delightful jumble of pagan, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, ancient, modern, sentimental, commercial, and spiritual traditions as anybody else. I think we get mixed up when we confuse historical time, which is linear, with cyclical time, which refers more to the round of seasons and the procession of the stars. The cycle of celebrations onto time that forms a great reparative cycle, circle, out of which the more frightening linear time, out of a more frightening linear time which has no beginning and no end. Or we can confuse with the third type of time, mythical time. The time we're referring to when we say, once upon a time, or happily ever after, mythical time, the time of archetypes that are not really in the past, but that continue to move us and shape us, shape our reality right now. It's what the aboriginals refer to as a dream time. And here, in our relationship to mythical time, is where we can get into trouble with some of our atheist friends, like Sam Harris, the author of The End of Faith, and Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, who so cogently and urgently and acerbically assault religion, both of the fundamentalist stripe, but also of any way of seeing or being that doesn't rely on reason alone. Storytelling has been around for thousands of years. Stories told in the cold winter with people gathered around a fire. Stories told about the beginning of the world, about the ancestors. Stories to document activities such as where the animals tended to graze the most. Stories of success, stories to entertain, but mostly they were told in the service of connection. Because, you know, sharing stories was an essential element in building friendships and alliances and families and, of course, communities. We tell stories because we need them to illuminate our common, ordinary lives and explain our world and our place in it. Myths and stories make us feel at home in the world. Before theology and theological reasoning and doctrine, says Victoria Safford, there was religion, plain as dirt and not quite as old as the stars. Before theological certainty and dogma and doubt, there is, there has always been, the religious impulse to dance and sing, to look and listen, to watch and wait, to chant and to light candles on whatever ground, whatever kitchen table, whatever picket line calls out for consecration or illumination. Before theology, she says, there is the impulse to tell stories and to find answers to our sense of wonder and beauty and terror. Before logic, analysis, ego, and reason will take their rightful places on that stage. When Felix Adler, the founding member of ethical culture, was young, he angrily opposed his fellow Jews 
who brought Christmas trees into their homes, excoriating them about the dangers to Judaism that would come with such assimilation. Yet many years later, with a family of his own, he came to hold regular Christmas parties in his home, (laughs) featuring a Christmas tree and an exchange of gifts with the words, Merry Christmas, concluding the letters to his family and friends. Now, to be sure, he understood Christmas only in a kind of symbolic sense as a festival of light and hope. But here is what he said about Christmas. In the practice of the New York Ethical Society, the Christmas festival, which, as it now stands, commemorates the birth of one divine child, is to be changed into a festival designed to celebrate the divine promise of human childhood. As such, the Christmas Day should be a festival of childhood preeminently in its highest meanings. He went on to ask, what is to be the symbol which we shall use to embody our thoughts? Isn't that interesting? What's the symbol to use? I didn't know that he was interested in symbols. But he said the only symbol which can be adequate for us is the child. The child, not merely as it plays about the tree or not as it enjoys its gifts, not in its relations to its parents or who take pleasure in its happiness, but the child apart from all these connections, the child as the vehicle of a new moral life, and therefore the type of the ever-recurring renewal of the moral life the child as the promise and the pledge of the whole unspeakable future. And he ends this portion of this platform which he gave in 1937, so this was late in his life, by saying, in our own festival of Christmas, I would have the children sing the song of the eternal childhood of the soul. That is, of its eternal innocence, of its eternal vitality, and of its eternal goodness. I would have the children of different races and social classes sit side by side to show that the soul is sacred in all, and that there is one bond of moral solidarity that unites us all. I would have the winter festival a pure festival of childhood, and all that childhood stands for. The religion of the ideal, which searches the airy realms of thought, can thus speak to the heart, and by the heart be understood. And so, Lest any of us might have thought that our festivals and celebrations were just something we here at West fancifully added into the otherwise important work we are meant to do, (laughs) Adler seemed to have thought otherwise. Now, we surely don't have to accept everything that Adler said, but it is probably true that he knew what belonged in this movement he created that celebrations and festivals have a place in it, and that he explicitly sanctioned and advocated them. So let's take just 
two of the many stories told at this time of year, the story of Hanukkah and the story of Christmas. The story of Hanukkah, which is a very minor celebration in the Jewish calendar, at first commemorated the rededication of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed by the, um, their oppressors, the, the Greeks and Syrians of 165 BCE. But later on, the rabbis thought that that um, glorified militarism too much, and so the celebration became a, 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 a festival about light. What happened was after the Jews went in to begin to restore the temple, they found only enough oil to light a lamp for one day. But miraculously, the oil lasted for eight days. Now, these um, Greeks and Syrians had forced the Jews for many years to bow down before their idols and to feast upon pigs, both of which were prohibited, of course, in Judaism. So this is the story not only of, an, of oil that burned and burned for eight days and could not be distinguished, extinguished, but of a religion that could not be extinguished, the human spirit that cannot be extinguished. We light the Han Hanukkah candles, wrote Lisa Doge, to symbolize, to honor, to celebrate the ways, great and small, that each of us has triumphed over forces that would have us abandon our beliefs, give us, give up on our faith, or lose our identity. You have the stories, all these stories like mine, she writes, stories of the decades-long friendship you had to end when you could no longer stand the racism, stories of the protests you marched in the picket lines you refused to cross, stories of times when moral or ethical decisions cost you your job but saved your soul, stories of times when to speak out, when you spoke out, difficult as it was, and you realized that it was easier than to remain silent. So that was Hanukkah. If you take the Christmas story on its own and separate it from the cataclysmic story to which it was headed, and also strip away from it those swaddling clothes of romantic baby manger sweetness, it is a very powerful and radical and beautiful and challenging story. The main characters are outcasts, strangers, illegals, refugees. Sound familiar? It's a story of people with no standing and who owned nothing, who mattered to no one, who were living in abject poverty in a hostile land. But those, of course, are not the elements of the story that we most hear about. Any of us who have been exposed to Western culture at all have seen the beautiful tableaus of the mother and child in a manger many times. 
We see it in the gorgeous jewel-toned paintings of Rembrandt or Caravaggio or Botticelli with an image of an unspeakably beautiful, young, lithe woman in rich blue robes and satin slippers cradling the infant Jesus in a sweet manger scene. Or we see her pictured kneeling before a giant angel receiving the shocking news that she, a peasant Jewish girl who had had no glory in her life to speak of up to this point, would be the vessel of the divine. What we see, of course, in these pictures is a picture of Mary cleaned up beyond all recognition with ivory skin, humble and serene in demeanor. All fantasies, I'm sure, that the Christian church fathers projected onto her. Their ideal of womanhood as an, an obedient, as obedient, luminous perfection and impossible purity. Now, as a child, I somehow weirdly convinced my Jewish stepfather to allow me to attend a summer session with my young friend at her vacation Bible school, where I enthusiastically came home singing adoringly, Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, holding a, plast- a little plaster statue of the, pict- of, of the Virgin Mary. I loved the Virgin Mary. I wanted to be the Virgin Mary when I grew up. (laughs) Needless to say, that little interfaith experiment came to an alarmingly quick end. Anyway, it would be years before it occurred to me that the picture of Mary was totally at odds with the reality of her poor peasant life, at odds with a dark-skinned Jewish woman with Semitic features she probably had, at odds with the poor, unwed, teenage, uneducated woman, grubby from riding a donkey all night, an exhausted Mary that she most likely would have been. Now, we do know that the details of the Christmas story evolved. The details, of course, of all of those ancient stories changed over time and in different parts of the world. A couple of years ago, I happened to pick up a book of 16th century Spanish and um, Catalonian, I guess that's the proper pronunciation of Caledonia, anyway, carols. Picking the tunes out on the piano, I saw that they were quite lively, more like dances. But what was most interesting to me was that in one of the carols telling of the gifts of the Magi, which were traditionally, of course, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I've always wanted to know what those were. The Magi in these Spanish carols brought the newborn baby lemon leaves, bread dipped in wine, hot chocolate, a chunk of lard, and some cottage cheese. Now, these people, of course, these peasants, were trying to tie the story, this important story of Jesus, to their own collective story, adding features from their own lives along the way. Along with many elements in the nativity story, as related by the two, two of the four gospel storytellers, the only ones who wrote about the nativity, none who lived at the time Jesus purportedly lived 
I, I just want to say that they, were, they had not, of course, lived when Jesus lived. I think it was maybe 70 years later that they began writing about him. But in those stories, we find no mention in the Bible, of course, of any cottage cheese anywhere. <laughs> now, in some ways, the New Testament Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the uh, nativity guys, offer contrasting mythologies. And as Joseph Campbell points out, each in its own way contain truths, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They incorporated into the nativity story all sorts of things from the prevalent and popular stories of virgin births, stories that were created to make the darkest of nights and shortest of days actually bearable when the signs of rebirth, of course, were nowhere in evidence. They took the stories that floated around the fringes of Judaism about messiahs, and people weren't sitting around waiting for messiahs, and those which had been a part of ancient cultures for centuries, stories celebrating the birth of Apollo, Baal, Dionysius, Helios, Hercules, and Mithra, and others, and combined them into one great superhero. They were tying the story of Jesus to their own collective story, adding features from their own lives along the way. The Christmas story is just that. It's just a story. It is true in the way that stories are true. No one, said the French philosopher Alain, asks if the fox really spoke to the crow. And no one asks if the trees actually held counsel with each other. And no one wonders aloud if a bear who loves honey can actually talk with a sad character named Eeyore. <laughs> Fundamentally, these stories are told in the winter. The winter stories are about the turning Underneath it all, the turning of the earth toward light again, the return of the light that sustains us. And here's what I get from these stories and why I believe they are worth us examining from time to time. In the Christmas story, we are reminded that what is often overlooked, ignored, or unseen possesses inherent worth and dignity and deserves their chance to realize their potential and their divine spark, as Adler called it. The Christmas story reminds us that every person, no matter how powerful and great, begins life as a tiny, helpless, vulnerable baby, dependent upon the protection and care of others and needing love to survive. But it is also true that these stories are stories of revolution, the revolution of the earth through its seasons, the revolution of people's struggles, all those unlikely guerrilla, guerrilla fighter insurrections like the Maccabees in the Hanukkah story, courageous insurrections of the oppressed against the oppressor, and celebrations of the revolutions within the human heart, those that we talk about all the time in this place. Revolutions where we have seen cold, cynical, hardened hearts opened toward love and new possibilities. That is our story. 
One week from tonight, as Amanda said, we will come together in this room to celebrate the winter solstice. Each year we write a different story, we tell a different story. And this story takes place, as you heard, over a few generations and with the help of a magic clock. We tell different stories, but we hope that we are illuminating the same truth. We know that the cycle of winter and spring, darkness and light, will take care of itself. But in the dark seasons of our soul, we have a part to play. We have a part to play in bringing joy and love and peace and hope back to our spirit, light back into our life. We will celebrate the Winter Festival here to remember a few sacred things we do hold as true. And, partic and in particular, the way that love and hope, joy and peace, and above all, a generous spirit are born again and again in people who might just as well choose otherwise. At the winter solstice, we remember that the disenchanted modern world is just part of something larger, something older, deeper than itself, and so are we. Those are the ingredients that can shine out of a life. I hope you join us next Sunday to see the hope represented in our children's faces, to feel the joy of goodwill and friendship in the room, to experience the very spirally spiral of peace, reminding us always that we belong to one another and the love that's shared and is readily ours. So I invite you to bring your light to that celebration. I close with a poem by my favorite poet. I'm sure you know who that is. Who? <laughs> And it contains a line that I went looking for all week and just found this morning. And so it goes like this. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes in the woman's restroom. One compartment stood open. A woman knelt there washing something in the white bowl, disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it, kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers, excuse me, rivers are pleasant, and of course, trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of the airport ashtrays as big as hubcaps with the blue rag.
Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She doesn't work slowly nor quickly like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen, but maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course, it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. Thank you.